The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from the front line, report on developments in Georgia, and Dom Nichols interviews Ukrainian rock band and Tila. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 10th of March, one year and 14 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front lines. Good afternoon, folks. Let's start in Bakhmut, in the in the Donbass. So fighting still continuing there. And this morning, Mikhailo Podolyak has reported, so he's one of President Zelensky's advisor. He's been speaking to Italy's La Stampa newspaper, and he said that Russia has changed tactics. Not sure exactly what he means by that, but he went on to say, quote, Russia has converged on Bakhmut with a large part of its trained military personnel, the remnants of its professional army, as well as the private companies. So I'll just take a, you know, just that's the end of that quote, a bit more in a moment. But I think what he means by change tactics is that they are, they are trying to reinforce or, or trying to back up what they've got going, uh, what little advance they've had there, which is not what they usually do. They try to, they've reverted back to the old tactics of pummel a place with artillery and then push the people in afterwards, hopefully in some armoured personnel carriers or tanks or what have you, if they've got any left, which I don't think they've got many of in that area at the moment. So I think he's suggesting they've changed tactics by just ploughing on for very, very little gain. He went on to say, quote, we therefore, as in Ukraine, we therefore have two objectives, to reduce their capable personnel as much as possible and to fix them in a few key wearisome battles to disrupt their offensive and concentrate our resources elsewhere for the spring counteroffensive, unquote. Now, this is is in line with what we've been saying for the last few weeks and, and other commentators. There's no huge, great strategic insight I think we've we've had to apply there. We've we've said that Ukraine have decided that, that this fight, although Bakhmut as a town is not of massive, uh, well, it's not of strategic importance. It's very limited operational importance. It's uh, okay, a, a road, crossroads, but it's not a major logistics hub. It doesn't, it produces salt and wine, but hey, that's, that's about it. But what Ukraine have, seem to have decided to do is that Looking at Russia and and seeing the symbolic value of the town, des- Russia desperate for a victory, and the internal wranglings between the sort of established Shoigu, Gerasimov, MOD, and the head of the armed forces of Russia, Vice Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner Group, there's that battle as well that, that they, Russia, have decided to play out over Bakhmut. So Ukraine has seen an opportunity here to wear down the Russian forces. So we've said that for for ages. I think that's that's fairly evident. It's it's odd though. I think to see an advisor by, of President Zelensky to say that's exactly what they're trying to do, and and to fix them in key wearisome battles, disrupt their offensive, and concentrate their resources elsewhere for the spring counteroffensive. I mean that that is what we think Ukraine are trying to do. It's odd to hear them say it. You might think, aha, it's a bluff. 
they're about to punch through up in Kharkiv or down in the south around Hezon again. Or maybe it's a double-double bluff. And that's exactly what they're going to do, hoping that Russia will move some forces away, thinking they're bluffing. I don't think we need to overanalyze this. I think uh, Mikhail Podoryak was perhaps a little unwise to say these things. But you, like I say, you don't have to be some massive strategic genius, not, not, doing, not doing us down here, to say that that has been fairly evident for some time. So we will, we will watch that. The, 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 the meat grinder, as it's been described there, continues. Russia not making any, any real gains. They've still not been able to close the encirclement around Bakhmut. There's still the open area to the, to the west. And actually, there's reporting elsewhere that suggests that the... Um, Russia had got to within about 700 metres of the main road heading southwest out of Bakhmut, and they've been pushed back a couple of k's, which is you know an interesting range. A couple of couple of kilometres is about the sort of handheld anti-tank range. That's what you're sort of looking at. I know they go further, but actually, that sort of beyond that kind of range, it um, you've got to be a bloody good shot, basically. So that's a that's a that's an interesting sort of tactical gap that the Ukraine seem to have, Ukraine Ukrainian forces seem to have managed to push Russia back. So yes, yeah, so back continuing as as it is, but it's certainly not. They can't claim victory yet. I know Yevgeny Prigozhin has said that they've taken the eastern part of the town and they've got men in the centre, and yeah, that's, that's all probably correct. But it doesn't mean that the town has fallen, and actually. Russia still view it as has the town fallen. They're looking at it in terms of geography. I think Ukraine is looking at this battle in terms of relative strength, i.e. for all the pain they are taking, it is in their interest to continue fighting because they are massively wearing down the Russian forces such that if Mr. Podiak is correct and he said the remnants of Russia's professional army is in there, well, that's exactly the kind of target that Ukraine needs to be wearing down ahead of any, any offensive. OK, enough on Bakhmut. What else was there? So the, the Russian missile strikes of, well, two nights ago into yesterday morning. Just to finish off on that. So we think about 11 people were killed across the country, which is you know, a, a small number, thankfully. Each one, each one a tragedy. But, you know, it, it could be a lot worse because we think they fired 84 different types of missiles. Oh, sorry, 84 different missiles, including 28 KH-101 and KH-555 and 20 calibre. They're all cruise missiles. We think they also fired six KH-22 anti-ship missiles, anti-ship missiles in the ground attack role, so it's never going to be as accurate as it would be in its primary role, and two KH-31P supersonic anti-ship missiles, six KH-47 Kinsal hypersonic missiles, hypersonic missiles going extremely fast and coming down at such a steep angle, it's almost impossible to shoot them down, and especially with what what Ukraine have at the moment in terms of air defence. We think they also used six KH-59 guided missiles and at least 13 S-300 air defence missiles, again, in the ground attack role. Eight Iranian-made Shahid-136 drones we've talked about. Um, and Ukrainian officials have likely, we, they, we think they were being used, the drones are now being used to distract the Ukrainian air defence systems. So to, to, to light up the system, so A, they, are, they reveal where they are. But also they are distracted by trying to shoot down the drones and therefore can't have a go at any of the other missiles that may follow on shortly. Now, Ukrainian forces say they shot down 34 of the 48 calibre and KH-101 slash cruise missiles and four of the drones. And Ukrainian Air Force spokesperson Yuri Inyat said that their forces do not have the capacity to shoot down some of the Russian missiles, which we think he's referring there to the Kinzhal and the S-300 missiles. So on, on that... Of note today, um, the first of two Patriot air defence missile batteries promised by the US has arrived in Ukraine. It's going to be some time before it's operational. This was reported in the Financial Times, but it's going to be some time 
sometime before it's operational and deployed. And we still don't know if even if the Patriots can um, can have a go at the at the Kinsale hypersonic missile for the reasons I suggested a moment ago. But what I would offer is just the thought on on what this means for for air defence and missile attack. You know, blanketing your enemy with missiles of any nature, including up to and including hypersonic. This was this. You know, Russia's using this as a tactic to firstly try and wipe out. Ukraine's critical national infrastructure, but also to break the will of the people. And it's not done either of those things. I mean, there's, of course, there are blackouts and there's, there's water supply problems around the, around the areas, but they've, they've shown amazing resilience in getting systems back online. And it certainly hasn't broken the will of the people. So I just wonder if what we're seeing here over successive months now of these pulses of, of air, air attack whether the the sort of mystery, the boogeyman status of some of these weapons is being is being removed. You know, we, we when Russia tests a hypersonic missile, you know, I'm thinking like a couple of years ago, and it all hits the press, and we go, oh my god, they've got hypersonic missiles; these things can't be defeated. Well, yeah, they might not be defeated, but if they are not hitting their targets, even if they get through, if they're not hitting their targets, or even if they hit their targets and it doesn't knock out. Yeah, it doesn't have an operational or strategic effect. I just wonder if they've lost their mystery. Question for for the uh, for for another time, probably. But I just want I just think what what's what are these repeated air attacks by Russia actually achieving? If only to show that they're not as effective as Russia would would want them to be. Just finally on the update, Georgia. So Georgia's parliament had voted today, Friday, to drop the controversial legislation about foreign agent registration, expecting NGOs, media organisations, well, anyone who's who gets more than 20% of their funding from overseas would be expected under this proposed law to register as a foreign agent. And it's seen not only is that, that a way of sort of clamping down on free speech but also shutting off the country and it's a direct mirror of what happened in in russia and is seen as a sort of the the shallow end of 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 that direction so it was voted down today now there were more protests last night it had been promised by the time of the protest last night it had been promised that it would be voted down in all likelihood but there were still protests so yes they were protesting against the bill because it, it hadn't yet been rubbed out but I think, and I'll be really interested in, in, in Roland's view here, I just wonder if this is actually the protesters now seeing a bit of momentum, seeing a, a window of opportunity perhaps, seeing Russia potentially distracted, seeing that this is their moment. I mean, Georgian, the citizens of Georgia have, have you, can, you can look back you know, decades to say they, they're trying to throw off the influence and the, and the yoke of Russia. And I just wonder if this is their, their seizing now, a, a potential moment to try and do something and that these protests will continue. But... I've got a few other bits and bobs to talk about later, but I'll just um, I'll take a pause there and be interested in Roland's thoughts. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Dom. As you said, we'll come back to some of your other things, some of your other updates and interviews later. Roland, can I come to you just firstly on Georgia? Would you like to add anything to that? And I was just also interested in your thoughts as to, well, <clears throat> how do we know? I mean, how is this being seen, being seen in Russia at the moment? Do we have a sense of that? The events in Georgia and Russia are being seen, depends who you ask, but I mean, Margarita Simonyan, for example, the, uh, the the hawkish director of Russia Today, one of Putin's most loyal propagandists, said in her telegram channel today, she basically threatened the nuclear strike on DC, saying, uh, you know, if there's a repeat of 2008, 2008, you'll remember, is um, it was when Russia and Georgia went to war, Russia won, in, in the Russian narrative, that was because Georgia unbooked, attacked the breakaway region of North Ossetia, Georgians and, and, and 
a lot of their Western allies say, well, they were actually gradually provoked into that by the Russians. The Russians wanted this, and it was about Russia punishing Georgia for for seeking join NATO. So it's this kind of this kind of narrative, you know, in Russia about how oh, it's it, it's the Ukrainians, the West trying to own a, a second front against us, as it were. And of course, well, which that's not that's not official rhetoric. The official rhetoric from the Kremlin, from Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, was this is nothing to do with us. We have absolutely. Nothing to do with that bill, but I would advise people not to get too involved in in violent protests. And so the Kremlin, as usual, kind of keeping you know, sounding sounding relatively sober and above it all, but it's propagandists very much talking about second front. We've seen this before. Looks like another color, color revolution, etc., etc. I think in the context of the war, it's inevitable they they start talking in those terms. Is it another second front? I mean. There's obvious, obvious direct parallels here with many things that have happened in this part of the world over the past 20 years. Not, of course, Euromaidan in Ukraine in 2014, because it, really it's about Europe in a way. The reason people came onto the streets in Tbilisi, it, it's, it, it's about this foreign agents law, which, as Dom said, you know, reflects the, the Russian foreign agents law, which came in a year ago, sorry, a decade ago in the aftermath of massive anti-Kremlin protests. And that was basically used to silence opposition. Uh, it was used to outlaw human rights groups. It was used to effectively intimidate and shut down independent media. And didn't it didn't happen overnight. Um, it happened gradually and the law was slowly expanded and it was and it was used over the years to increasingly kind of browbeat people until finally it's like we're in violation of this technical detail of this law, you're shut down. So people saw that and they didn't like it. But, but the thing that seems to be coming out of the protests um, when journalists speak to the protests is, is that it's not just about that. It's the fact that look, this is something that the European Union doesn't like. And um, we all really want to join Europe. And there's a suspicion amongst the protesters and the opposition that the Georgian government, which has, remember, applied the European Union membership, is sabotaging its own project, perhaps so as not to rock the boats with Moscow. So there's a definite kind of question about the direction of the country here are we going to europe are we going to russia um do the protesters feel momentum at acts i was asking myself the same question the other night because when they said we're going to stay on the streets they said we're staying on the streets until all of the all of those arrested have been released and until parliament formally votes down this draft law well the interior ministry released all of the the arrested people last night and now as don mentioned the draft law has been voted down. It will be very interesting to see whether there is a fourth night of protests outside Parliament in Tbilisi tonight. And if there is, then yeah, I think we can say uh, the opposition definitely feels the wind at its back and, and feels an opportunity to do something more. Roland, can I stay with you? Let's go back to what Dom reported earlier about some of the remarks by Mikhail Podolyak, the uh, Zelensky's advisor, when he talked about Russian changing Russia changing tactics. That's what he told Italy's La Stampa newspaper. Quote, it has conversion of Bakhmut with a large part of its trained military personnel, the remnants of its professional army, as well as the private companies. We therefore have two objectives, to reduce their capable personnel as much as possible and to fix them in a few key warehouses and battles to disrupt their offensive and concentrate our resources elsewhere for the spring counteroffensive. Those were the remarks from Mikhail Podolyak earlier that Dom related to us. You've been speaking to Vadim Pristaiko, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK. Um, what did he tell you and how much does that line up with what we've heard just there from, from Mr. Podolyak? 
Yeah, so I, I, I was speaking to Ambassador Pristaiko because I wanted to I want to ask him about kind of Western sentiment and Western arms supplies and the the, the second coming of the, the grand effect. I mean, it's like waiting for, for, for the Messiah or something, isn't it? You know, we're all sitting here talking about one day there will be the spring offensive. So I, I, I was asking about that and I was, I was asking whether he felt that you know, there'd been some something of a dramatic shift because if we if we look at the the kind of pledges of military support for Ukraine, there, there's a bit of a spike. You know, over December, January, the last Ramstein meeting in January, really, really kind of significant in terms in terms of money and other stuff being put on the table. We've all spoken about the tanks, but it's about more than that. It's about a lot more than that. It's Bradley fighting vehicles and support vehicles and, and other things. Now he pushed back on the idea that there had been a sudden change. He said, "Look, there's been." A, a a gradual and an, an incremental shift in perceptions to the point where the west is kind of saying okay we want the ukrainians to achieve something we've got to we've got to do something to make that happen and the timing of this you know this this kind of dramatic expansion of aid that re- that reflects that reflects the seasons the timing right so so the idea being that by april the ground will be getting hard enough for offensive actions to take place that's why Ukraine and the West want all this stuff in play for that offensive to come up to, to to give them the opportunity to to make some kind of progress. And and the thing that he talked about, interestingly, you know, he he wasn't so focused on tanks or APCs or or this bit of hardware or that bit of hardware. He was talking about capability and he was talking about training. So we all know that Ukrainian troops have been training in Britain. I think the figure was. 10,000 last year they're talking about doubling to 20,000 this year that's kind of basic training mostly that's kind of that that, that that's conscripts people have been drafted coming over to britain and, and being put by the british army through a kind of an accelerated form of infantry basic training so they're turned out as as, as competent soldiers but there's something else going on as well in, in other countries much closer to ukraine that was how that input it there is more advanced training going on um, all, all, all this kit that has been promised is not just going to be sent to Ukraine and, and sent to the front. There's going to be combined arms training. Dom has talked about this since the beginning of the war. The entire orchestra working together, kind of NATO-style training about how to use this stuff all together. So, you know, the tanks are working with the with the air support, with the artillery, with the infantry, so that Ukraine is able to to put an army in the field that's able to do these kinds of things, which which it hasn't really been able to do before. I mean, yes, the Ukrainian military has transformed and, and done very, very well, as we've seen over the past year. But it is still, on the whole, it, it is a it is an ex-Soviet military, and it has its its generals studied in the same academies as the Russian generals. It, it, it you know those those cultures, those ways of doing things are extremely difficult to shift. So the idea is that come come the spring, when whenever it is, wherever it is, this offensive takes place, the Ukrainians are going to have the techniques and the skills to to do something dramatic, not just a bunch of kit. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Renan. Thank you for tying that back to some of the, yes, some of what we've talked to you before. Dom, do you want to come in on that at all or should we move on? Well, I, yeah, nothing really to add. I just think as Ronan says, what happens tonight will be instructive the momentum is everything with these things, as as we've seen. And um, I mean, Russia's already making noises that it's that it's against this type of activity. So I think they can see the danger. And they can see what it, what it could possibly lead to. Um, whether or not they've got, the, I think, what do we think? They've got about five thousand troops in Georgia in the in the two in the two regions. So, but whether or not they could they could try and do anything if there was a a major uprising. 
but yeah, if momentum peters out, then it then it's done for now. But uh, yeah, I think the next couple of nights will be absolutely instructive. Thank you very much, Dom and Roland. Dom, can I stay with you? Do you want to tell us a little bit about your interview yesterday? It sounded absolutely fascinating. Who were you off to meet? So I went to meet Svetlana Sikhanouskaya. She's the leader of the uh, Democratic opposition in Belarus, although she's not in Belarus. she's uh, She had to flee to Poland. She's now in, in based herself out of Lithuania because if she set foot in, in Belarus, she would be arrested, as have many of her colleagues, and as has her husband. Her husband was the leader of the party, um, stood was going to stand in the 2020 election, then he was arrested on all kind of trumped up charges. I think they found 900,000 euro in his flat that, you know, down the back of the sofa or, or what have you. Anyway, so he was in prison and uh, Mrs. Sikhanouskaya stepped up to to lead the party. Um, now, Lukashenko won that. President Alexander Lukashenko won that election supposedly with over over 80% of the vote. I think Mrs. Sikhanouskaya was allowed to have 10% and some others, some sort of minor minor figures. But it's widely thought that she was the the winner, that Democratic forces did win that presidential election. There were, were riots for, for weeks afterwards, increasingly violent. Um, not many people killed, thankfully, but it was a very hard crackdown by Lukashenko. And since then, she's had to run her United Transitional Cabinet from, as I say, Poland now, now Lithuania, because yeah, just just because of because of the risk. So she was over. She was in London, going around the Foreign Office and and elsewhere, just trying to to keep attention in, in Belarus and build up support. She says she she is attracting attention from the British government and said there were concrete request. Well, she had concrete requests for the British government, which included synchronising sanctions with the EU withdrawing Britain's ambassador ambassador to Minsk, which we, we do have an ambassador in Minsk. And she also wants in international groupings and meetings, the the representatives of Belarus, the official representatives of Belarus, part of Lukashenko's regime, she was calling for them to be replaced in international organisations with members of the, the recognised democratic forces. And she was, she was saying there's a, she's getting a lot of a lot of warm words from a lot of countries, but it's a bit like she likened it to the weapons debate for Ukraine. Like everyone's sort of looking over their shoulder, thinking who's going to who's going to jump first, who's going to stick their neck out, who's really going to make the play here. And she was suggesting that the that Britain could become a champion. Her words, a champion for Belarusian democracy, around which the international community could coalesce. And she said the UK is ready to do a lot. Some countries support this, some support that. There's no clear strategy. We need more coordination of activities of different countries. The UK might be a champion in this. We proposed it. We will see. She was talking about a window of opportunity, a bit like we were just saying just now over Georgia. She sees the the assault in Ukraine as just shaking the entire region. And as James Kilner has mentioned before, this is the 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 this trouble on the edge of of Russia and the former areas that used to be under Soviet control. I mean, this is this is what Putin fears that these areas just are just breaking away from what he sees as his sphere of influence. But Mrs. Sikhanouskaya was saying that there's a window of opportunity for political change as a result of the war in Ukraine. Um, there are internal pressures, partisans, which we'll talk about in a moment. But she said that the system. Lukashenko's system is built very much in the guise of Russia and it's just so rigid and inflexible. It can't react swiftly to any external changes and is like it, it, it's as we've seen elsewhere around the world it's it's really uh stiff and strong and immovable 
until it suddenly isn't and then shatters and there's and there's well chaos but a, a complete change very very quickly so she was saying that they're kind of getting ready for this change which she likened to or not likened but said that when when ukraine is victorious that will be such a shake of the snow dome that lukashenko who has who's in power basically because because of putin but in in power because of a a small band of security around him but she said that actually the wider security apparatus both in the military and the police and the the kind of local officials part of the of the the bureaucracy of the country are not in any way lukashenko fans and they there's no suggestion that they would support him if push came to shove and so she says it is a it is a, a very fragile environment that's just just needs something to uh to, to give it a give it a good kick and so we started talking about well yeah what can she do how how much can she influence from outside the country and she said well it's not a it's not a question of her leading or influencing it's it's their self-starting movements inside the country we've seen these these acts of sabotage so they've been since the full-scale invasion of ukraine started last february there have been over 80 acts of uh, railway sabotage destroying lines carrying military russian military equipment down to and into ukraine and there have been a number of people sentenced some up to 175 years in jail a number of belarusian citizens have also set up a special telegram channel where they posted photographs of russian troop movements and and so on i mean these are very brave acts in in the environment of belarus so you know there's no taking away that there's um there's very brave people there trying to trying to make a stand and Mrs. Sigunovskaya was saying that they play a significant role, this partisan activity, and keep Lukashenko constantly looking over his shoulder because he has to show Putin that he's in charge, that he's suppressed his people, that they don't have the strength to resist, and that every small act of resistance by ordinary people, by the partisans, shows that they're still there, that they've not given up, that the, the flicker, the flame of democracy is still there, they're going to continue the fight, and Lukashenko is always on on notice if you like now she said they are self-organized nobody's conducting them i'm fully supportive of any activity inside and outside belarus that helps us to dismantle the regime but we stick to peaceful changes the acts of sabotage and blowing up the plane remember was it two weeks ago now the a50 the big AWACS airborne warning and control system plane the russian it's basically you bring your own air traffic control to the party type plane russia have we think six of them and one was uh so badly damaged it's out of action at an airfield just outside Minsk a couple of weeks ago so she said the acts of sabotage and blowing up the plane are not acts of violence yes it damaged some equipment but this equipment is done to kill people so I think partisans are doing a great job without any victims unquote so that that attack on the plane was was claimed by an organization called BIPOL which is a a group of former security officials in the in the Belarusian system they they claimed it and they've actually released drone footage of the, the drone that when it landed on the big radar, the radome on top of the, the A-50 plane, and then and then blew up. So she denied knowledge of membership of BIPOL. And um, she said she said that, well, you know, she's aware of partisans, but, but you know, is not direct and doesn't know the people. So I, I pointed out to her that, that a, a chap called Alexander Azarao, who's, who's a BIPOL's self-proclaimed leader and claimed responsibility for that attack he's actually a member of of the united transitional cabinet and and he he runs the law and order brief so i said you know so you can't really say you don't you don't know these people you do have some links to them and she just 
sort of smiled at me and said they also have the right to secrecy, which I thought was somewhat telling. So, I mean, fascinating conversation. A really, a really intractable problem. I don't think that there's, there's going to be a, a democratic breakthrough, breakout in Belarus unless and until something absolutely seismic happens, which could be Ukrainian victory, could be Putin being unseated or, or what have you. But for as long as Putin is powerful and Lukashenko is powerful and, and isn't jolted by an external, buffeted by an external event, i.e. Ukraine, I think it would be very, very hard for the Belarusian opposition to be able to have any kind of breakthrough there whatsoever. Putin simply cannot allow it. He needs to have that sphere. It would deny him this the, the claim that, that he's that he's reimagining the Soviet empire or, or what have you. Plus, he needs the territory. He needs the territory to, to threaten Ukraine. He needs the territory to train his, his troops and fire, fire all the missiles down into Ukraine. He also needs it because um, because of Kaliningrad, the little exclave, Russian exclave that's sort of sandwiched up by between Lithuania, Poland and the Baltic Sea. So Belarus, the, the Sivaliki Gap, the, the area, I think 60 or 70 k's between Kaliningrad and Minsk, that that gap is crucial for keeping Kaliningrad going and if Minsk were to were to embrace democracy and turn away from Putin then you know it would just it would just basically make Kaliningrad untenable so Putin has to have Belarus he has to have a compliant Lukashenko there and therefore any kind of uprising if it unless it happened very quickly and and was done and dusted before Russia could get its act together and get the tanks over the border. I, I can't really see that happening. Now, I was speaking to some officials a couple of days ago in London about this, European ambassadors who wish to, to remain you know, anonymous for now. But um, we were, they were saying how if, if they, they would hope that certain external influences like, I don't know, CIA, SIS, Germans, whoever – would be speaking to Lukashenko saying, look, pal, you know the game's up long term. You can keep your money in your in your bank account, which may or may not be in a central European country. Just looking over the office here at the legal department. Um, you know, you can keep your money. We might even give you a bit of more money. Costa Rica, Honduras is lovely at this time of year. Why don't you go and, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia? Why don't you go and make your, make your life there? So unless something happened very, very quickly and Lukashenko was gone and there was a very quick transition of power, I can't really see the Belarusian opposition, democratic opposition, breaking through there before Putin was able to act, unless something had happened in Russia already. So it was very interesting to meet her. Definitely one to watch, especially for the partisan activity in, in Belarus, but um, you know, ultimately, I think I think she's a you know, brave lady with a very tough job. Well, thanks very much, Dom. I've no idea why you'd refer to the Czech Republic like that, but who knows? Just a quick note to our listeners: if you want to learn more about Belarus or hear more of our interviews and work on it, we did do a two-part episode with Professor David Marples, um, an expert in Belarus, from a couple of weeks ago, and we also spoke to former Belarusian diplomat Pavel Slunkin. I think about three weeks ago. We can try and put these in the show notes. Um, if you want to hear more about what Belarusians and experts on Belarus think is 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 happening there. Dom and Ronan, can I get your very final thoughts? What will you be looking at over the next few days, over the weekend? What do you think our listeners should know? Dom, why didn't you start? Yeah, so today, uh, Rishi Sunak, Britain's Prime Minister, is uh, meeting Emmanuel Macron, French President Emmanuel Macron. Their first summit, well, the first of these two guys, first summit, British-French-Franco summit at this level 
since the pandemic and um, since uh, since the full scale invasion of Ukraine. So a lot to talk about. They're going to they're going to talk for ages about uh, migration and the small boats in the channel and all the rest of it. They're also going to talk about Ukraine and um, and it will be interesting to see what they come out with there. I mean, France, for, for all the way that you know, we love bashing France, obviously, for obvious reasons. It's great sport. But, I mean, they're fantastic allies. They, Britain and France are the only European P5 members. France is a nuclear power. I mean, they're major, major world, world players for all, the, for all the grief that we, that we give them. So, you know, this is a huge uh, a relationship, one of the most important relationships Britain has. It's good to see these two people talking. I hope they talk a lot about the, the leadership regarding the, the, the war in Ukraine and what might happen next and come after and not just focus on small boats, but yeah, keep keep an eye on that. That'll be uh, that'll be breaking over the weekend, and we'll obviously talk about it on Monday. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols, Roland Oliphant. Yes, I think the periphery, the periphery of the old Soviet Union and the periphery of Russia is is worth keeping an eye on at the moment. And we talked about Georgia, and obviously that that episode is well, that might be over for now, but we don't know. It's worth watching that. Moldova this morning was pushing back at the claims from the breakaway region of Transnistria that Ukraine was orchestrating a terrorist attack or something. So no, the, the Russians are trying to mount a coup there. We saw kind of pro-Russian protests there a few weeks ago. And we've just obviously been talking um, about Belarus. I mean, these are all places to watch. I think they are potential you know i mean the russians are talking about a second front opening in georgia i mean i wouldn't think about a kind of a second military campaign but but these are definitely places where this grand confrontation it will play out in in certain ways in political competition of course it's all linked together because really um in in very broad brush strokes this entire crisis and the war is about the aftermath of the fall of the soviet union and the the path that those countries are going to take and 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 russia attempts to to resist losing its influence over over these areas so definitely keep an eye on those returning back to the backfield on on bakhmut i mean i feel i feel that bakhmut is still very much on a knife edge. I was quite curious about President Zelensky's decisions. It was earlier this week to, to say, look, I, I've met with the generals. I met with General Zeluzhny and, and, and his colleagues, and they all said they want to fight for Bakhmut, so we're going to keep on fighting for it. I mean, I wonder, because as Don was saying, the narrative from the Ukrainian side is we are tying down Russians there and we are killing, <clears throat> we're killing more of them than they're killing of us. And that's going to that's going to pay off when we bring in all these reserves later and we haven't been brought into a trap. I think the Russians are trying to do the same thing, quite honestly. I mean, I, I think I think they're quite pleased that the Ukrainians are are putting so much into holding on to this city. Um, and, and there seems to be at least a thought or a train of thought really between the lines on the Russian side that they can bleed the, the Ukrainians wider, that, that, you know, the Ukrainians have got fewer men to lose than the Russians, and the more people they put into this meat grinder, the more can be killed. And that way, from the Russian point of view, maybe they can force the Ukrainians to commit those reserves piecemeal, and therefore the spring offensive won't be as effective. I think we will not know the answer to who is on the winning side of that equation until spring, um, until this much-fabled offensive uh, appears wherever it does, whatever form it takes, that, that will be the telling moment. But at the moment, yeah, still, still very nervous about that place. Hi, everyone. Dom Nichols here. So a couple of weeks ago, I met the band Antatia, Ukrainian band 
who serve in the armed forces. They After 2014, they've served in the territorial forces. And after the full-scale invasion last year, they, they took up their posts as medics. But they've been given special permission. They had to get special permission from the head of the Ukrainian armed forces to come on a European tour. That's because they are seen as global ambassadors spreading their message. So they were able to get out and go on tour. I'm of a certain age now. I do occasionally prop up the wall in the Devonshire Arms in Camden, listening to some thrash metal, but not often. Um, but I did venture down to Electric Brixton to go and meet Taras Topolia, the uh, lead singer of Antatia, uh, for an in- interview. Now, I'm not very good at all this audio lark, as you know, so I had the microphone pointed in the wrong direction. It sounds like I'm talking through a potato, but uh, at least you can hear what Taras has to say. Anyway, hope you enjoy the interview. Oh, and stick around for my cringeworthy attempt at the only banned joke I know at the end. It's awful. So, Taras, thank you so much for sparing the time for The Telegraph. We're here in the Electric Brixton venue in South London. You've got a gig tonight. Start of your European tour today? I hope. But, you know, when you're living in such circumstances, you don't know what will happen next. So we plan to play a couple of concerts in Germany, in Czech Republic, in Poland, in France, in Israel, and we hope that they will happen here. Now, Antitia started in 2007, I think, and the lineup settled down a couple of years after that, but you've been pretty stable for the last 10 years or so? Yeah, we started in 2008. Yeah, we released our first album, and started our way on a big stage. I finished my studying in university and started to play music as my colleagues. Some of them were working on other works, but they lived it and started to play music with me as uh, Sergio Wusik, uh, my friend and colleague and keyboard player on, in Anticilla band. So everything started from 2008, but Music in my life was from four or five years old because I remember that I always was singing something inside of me, you know, like it's the melodies in my head and harmonies and lyrics. It was appearing every time. I was walking the streets and singing. I was like sitting in a bus and singing. But if to speak about like official story of Antitila, it starts from 2008. And... After the invasion in 2014, you joined the Territorial Defence Force, I understand, yeah, and yeah. you've maintained that link with the uniformed services to the extent that you have served over the last year in a medical capacity. Is that correct? No, it's not absolutely correct. We weren't serving on, on military forces before the war started. But for us, war started in 2014 when uh, Russia annexed Crimea. And the war on the Donbass started and we became uh, volunteers. We started to find the money, buy different essential equipment and deliver it directly to the front line, to our friends, because our friends became soldiers. They were mobilized. And from that time, we knew a lot what is happening on the front line, how it works, how the war works. And in that time, we were delivering a lot of medical stuff, medical equipment. And, of course, we learned how to use stab blooding, tourniquets, bandages, and everything else. We get some trainings. And that's why when the big full-scale war started, 
we came to our battalion of territorial defense forces and started to serve like as a paramedical squad because we were well in this we knew how to give first aid and how to make our brothers in, in arms not to die and they to survive but i want to mark that we were preparing for this war because our Ukrainian intelligence, United States intelligence and United Kingdom intelligence were predicting that this war will start. We didn't recognize in that moment when it will be start, but we understood that it will. So we prepared for this and we made a decision to become a part of our future battalion before the war started. Now you've spoken in the past about the moral choices you've had to make and how you, I mean, you were big in Russia, and even after February last year, you were still invited back to Russia and to um, their, their their big music festival. Yeah, festival, yeah. Another, another Nashestvie. Nashestvie. And you turned that down, and and you said that's cost you a million dollars. If to count, yeah, Russia market, it's a huge market. It was a huge market, and before two zero fourteen. Mostly Ukrainian artists became and get a success only if they were recognized as like a good musicians in Moscow. It was used to do like this. If you want to become a popular, you must sing Russian language and uh, you must to like somehow to get to the Moscow and to get to their airs like in radio and festivals in ATC. But when the war started in 2014, we closed this door for us. It was our own decision, moral decision. Like, um, we didn't uh, count it, the money at the time. We didn't measure it, like, how many money we will last. Because it was not about money. Uh, Antitila, from the beginning, were singing Ukrainian language. And a lot of our songs, uh, they are social, they are about our country and about our nation. And we understood from the first day when we get to the stage that uh, singing Ukrainian is very important. It's strategically important. And when the war started, it was only one decision to shut this door and even not imagine that someday we will play in Moscow or St. Petersburg. I was joking that we can play someday in St. Petersburg or Moscow, even if tickets on our concert will be able to buy by hymnas, you know. <laughs> so it, it will mean that, <laughs> that uh, Russia as a state not exists anymore, <laughs> you know. So I still not counting like the money that I, like among the people, that are trading on the markets, it names like FOMO. It's when you expecting to get some money to get some profit and you are making some stupid things because of this. So we didn't expect it that we will get some money in Russia market. So that's why we closed the story and continued to play Ukrainian music in Ukraine. And we gave a lot of concerts. We gathered stadiums in Ukraine. And of course, for us, like European market was closed because it's different languages, I think you understand. But we understood that we will never achieve a such big success in, just only in Ukraine if we will not play like in Russia. But we understood that for us it was impossible because of our thoughts, because what it was in our hearts and 
it was our like, decision. And you say it was strategically important yeah. that you sing in Ukrainian, yeah. in your language, and you and you close off the Russian market to you. But there's another area in which you can be said to be having a strategic effect, and that is the fact that you are here. So you, you got permission. You need this special permission to leave the country as a as a as a male of, of fighting age. You need and the band needed special permission. Um, how did that go about, and how do you feel about having such a permission and, and your role now as a as an ambassador for your country? It was absolutely frankly a story what happened with Antitula from the first day of the war because we made this decision inside from our hearts because we were understood that we must to defend this country as you was asking before, like the main was how can I watch uh, eyes of my sons? if I will not do what I must to do as a citizen of my country. And the same question had my colleagues, and we decided to take part in the resistance and to handle a gun, handle a weapons, rifles, because it was most efficiently way how to resist. Because singing a song on the stage, it is not saving lives. Because we were working, definitely we saved a lot of lives using these arms, using our skills. And also it's very uh, important to mark that this, it was during this year it was a couple of different periods. So first three months it was absolutely insane. And everybody must to do his or her best. So that's why we became soldiers. And we didn't, we stopped our career. We didn't even think about what to play and how to play. We released on the second day of the war. We released our our new album because it was like planned to release. We released this album from from the shelter, like it it was shelter of battalion. It was like our base. It was underground parking. We just uh, recorded on the selfie camera video and said. Come on, guys and girls, you can upload our album, but we are continuing to do our military job. That's all. But what happened next, and uh, it continues to happen, that because of that, that we were quite popular in Ukraine, a lot of media from all over the world started to connect with us. Fortunately, we had an internet in our country. It is... It is like strategically difference between like war that were eight years ago and this present war because when you are having an opportunity when you have an opportunity to connect with others and to share the information fast and uh, to make the truth became available everywhere it helps so I understood that I must to speak with media. I must to show what is happening and they to share the truth because Russian propaganda were very powerful and continue to be very powerful. And everything that they're telling it is a lie. It is absolutely, it's like inverted world, you know. And I recognize that I must to speak. I must to do my job and if it, somebody wants to speak with me, I must to tell about what is happening. And step by step, very interesting things started to happen. We were serving in Kyiv in that time and all on Titila band were in Kyiv. We were not afraid. We didn't escape from the key. We, three of us were working as a paramedics 
two of us were working like a military volunteers, like civilian volunteers that helps military volunteers. Because like in, in our language, we don't have such definition like a military volunteers. For us, it's like uh, Dobrovolets uh, in Ukrainian. Dobrovolets, it means that you took a gun by your will. But uh, volunteer in, in, in Ukraine, it means that you are not a fighting, but you are helping to fight or helping to survive, for example, for refugees. So we uh, became uh, military volunteers, and our two colleagues became civilian volunteers. They were doing everything to help our battalion, to find some different equipment for us and ATC. So we were, five of us were in Kiev. Despite of our wives, they were replaced from the Kiev. They escaped at the first day of the war. So, and when we recognized that Chiran uh, will take a part in a um, concert in Birmingham, our Anna, our friend and colleague, she's PR manager of Antitila, she were in that time in Lviv, and she texted to me or called, I don't remember definitely, and she said, oh my God, can you imagine that Ed Sheeran supports Ukraine? I said, okay, what it will be? She said, it will be a concert in Birmingham and a lot of artists will be there and like Ed Sheeran especially because she is a big fan of Ed Sheeran. Like, and I'm, I'm also very love his songs. So, and after that, we recorded that video that became viral. It was truly, it was like fast decision. We were serving in Kiev. I just took a phone and, 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 come on guys, let's record it, this video applying. Because it was like fast idea. It appeared instantly. Oh, why not to make uh, this bridge between Kiev, unconquered Kiev, and Birmingham? It will be great. We have internet, we had, we, we had internet in that time, Starlink. You know, and we can play something even in in acoustic. You know, and after that, if to answer what what you what you questioned about, after that we became like uh, we get not a well known. We became like recognizable in in uh, media in United Kingdom because a lot of people were supporting us. They a children got back to us and said, "Come on, guys." Let's check it out. I want to check it out your music, but organizers of this concert declined us, and it it, it cased new wave, like of. Uh, mm. So this this is the concert for Ukraine uh, last year that was, that was Birmingham. Yeah. And you wanted to you offered to dial in and and perform. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, on, from Kiev. From, from, from Kiev. Uh, we wanted to do it from the Khrushchev Square. But they turned you down, saying that yeah. it was a humanitarian concert, yeah. and yeah. you were—it was too political. Your, yeah. And new, wa- new wave uh, started. To from that, Ed Sheeran yeah. got in touch and yeah. said, "Right, let's do something." And you yeah. and you released the video together. Yeah. And and from Ed Sheeran, he connected you to Bono, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask. I mean, that, that must have been an intensely frustrating time when Concert for Ukraine turned you down. Of all the of all the people who yeah you know, trying to to do the bit through the through music. So it must have been intensely frustrating, and yet from it came this link to Ed Sheeran and Bono. So actually looking back on that period, how do you reflect on that? I want to finish my uh, answer about uh, why I get a permission to be here, like, and one why Antitila were replaced from the front line. Because the chain uh, of this story took us to that moment when Ed Sheeran invited us to take a part in his concert in Poland. 
And we came to our commanders. We were like serving at that time. We came to our commanders and said, could you imagine a children want me to take a part and sing to step with him alive on the stadium in Poland? And they said, of course, guys, you must go. You must to sing because uh, it is the main. Because who will sing if you will not sing? Yeah. And they also told to us that we must... Uh, I need to mark that hard, insane period was uh, finished because first three months of the war and second three months of the war, it was very hard. But in summer, the situation stabilized a little bit. A lot of people got involved in this war as uh, military volunteers. The mobilization was on, go on, on the road like... And our commander said that, guys, you already made what you must to do. You, You've made your contribution. Yeah, you made your contribution and you uplifted the spirit. And it's, I believe in this, that a lot of people that were watching us and listening to us, they became soldiers as we, because they tried to copy what, what we was doing. So, and our commander said that, guys, you must to go and play concert, of course, and you mustn't go back to the front line. And our chief in commander, Valery Zaluzhny, he gave an order and we were extracted like from the front line to, to, to the Poland directly and after that to the Kiev and we started to work more like musicians, like civilian volunteers, we continued to help. You had, a, you had an order from General Zaluzhny? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, So that's why. But if he will give a new order and he will say, come on guys, you must come back to the front line, we will do this, of course. It's not a discussion, like even not no discussion about this. So about the, that time, it was, for what I want to say, man, that I didn't enjoy it. Uh, everything that was happening at that time. Full, you know, at full, you know, like, because I, could, I couldn't even imagine that Someday Bonner will come, will call to me, because it is a legend. It is my biggest start in star in my life. I was listening Bono for I don't know when I was born. Bono was a legend already. In, I was born in uh, 1987. Oh, Joshua Tree. Kind of it finish. is my favorite album. Yeah. I'm aware of his work. Yeah, and but I didn't felt that it's something cool happens because I was in war and it was like one moment ago Bono called and next moment we uh, move on the front line and our brother in arms get getting injuries and ATC you know and it was like in fog everything was like foggy in fog in my head but if to analyze what happened it's absolutely incredible story that starts from the key of, from that from that uh, video that we recorded, and that it launched a chain of different uh, situations that uh, that brings you here to Brixton at the start of your yeah European tour. And mm. do you think that the audience connect with with that side, your the the, the war side of your of your story? Uh, yeah, they come here for the music, and that's terrific. I think I think I think I think mostly the audience connected because uh, for our uh, like military uh, background because I I yes of course 
for this night i hope that there will be a lot of people from united kingdom that will, will that will come to listen that are singing ukrainian language but mostly uh, i think uh, it happened uh, and we get this audience in united kingdom and united states because uh, we switched our musical instruments to the to the weapons and started to serve but we weren't expecting on this it wasn't for us the main and it's still being the main we, our main goal is a victory in this war and after that i will i don't know i will uh, enjoy like this popularity and atc and i will have fun yeah of course if you will invite us of course we will do this and having fun on the stage you know and uh, everything i i dream to like uh, to take a part in parade on the Khrushchev with my, my battalion, with winner, with when we will get the victory parade on Khrushchev parade, victory parade on Sevastopol, and after that, I I think I will uh, drink a little bit for one week, and after that, you know, we can go back to our usual, usually artistic life. Have you found it a a professionally fulfilling time, as in the emotions that are stirred by this warfare? You as an artist, you work with and feed from emotion. So have have you found it professionally? And yeah. I, you know, I'm not talking morally, but just professionally as an artist, a fulfilling time. Yeah, I sublimate everything inside me. And last, uh, our new song, Fortress Bakhmut, uh, was written under those emotions. And, we, and it... Uh, I can tell it uh, that it is a very powerful song that uh, uplift the spirit of our colleagues, brothers in arms, that gives power them to fight. And uh, of course, for me as an artist, it is very important to collect this emotion. Ah, Puchikai. To collect this emotion and to create something new that wasn't exist before like songs and uh, videos but uh, I don't want to create the dark albums because until I every every whole my life until I and what we were doing we were trying to bring some light to the people to uplift them to like higher level of consciousness through the metaphors uh, through the Mm, those uh, creativity tools that we use in lyrics and in music. So I want to write a new album in future. It's full of light album, with uh, passion, with hope, and because when we will get this victory, we will need to build like new country, rebuild our country, and build. A kind of new country, and it will need uh, power, uh, lightful power, and it must be in music that we will create in the future. So, but of course, I had, uh, I keep inside a lot of black emotions that it was. For example, I was unlocking the telephone of my uh, killed friend by his finger prints. He was already died. He was cold. His body was cold. But I was need to do this. It was on my birthday, so I, I hope that 
despite of my English, you know, <laughs> not uh, correct, because uh, I try to share information about Ukraine. And every every time when I'm giving interviews, I try, I, I'm telling that we are not ready to lose this war. We are definitely will win, the, will win this war. It's just a matter of time, because uh, we have no other choice, first of all. Because we are fighting not just for the future of our country, uh, we fight in future of whole Europe. We have the same values, the same principles. And if we will lose, the world all order will fall. Because it's, it's not right when somebody can use uh, the power and force in other countries and other nations and making them down on their knees just because he or she wants. It's not right. That's why I know that we will get this victory. Because whole world is standing by Ukraine. And we continue to fight. You must to uh, mark it uh, that we will do everything that we can to get this victory. On different levels. On different levels. From the trenches till the, our president. We are working like one machine. Like one organism. Like one... And... Uh, I hope that uh, we will meet in the future, after the victory, and... Uh, well, I, it, I, I look forward to coming to the Victory of Light gig, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Taras, thank you so much indeed, and uh, thank you. good luck for the gig tonight. Thank, thank you. you, thank you. Can I, can I, like, the only joke I know, the only band joke I know, I just want to see if it translates English to Ukrainian. Uh, what do you call somebody who hangs around with a band? I can understand, can I? Anna Dolinska, PR manager. The drummer. Drummer? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. It's a, it's a, it clearly doesn't translate to Ukrainian. It's, it's a it's stupid a, English joke. Uh, I will translate. It's a very nice person who says, how do you know who hang out around the band? Who hang out the, around the band? How do you know a person who hangs out the band? You have to do something else. I say, I'm PR manager, no drummer. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Emily Hill.